Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 48, verses 8 to 20. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. This is the word of God. You know, times like this are, you know, we, we, have a, we still have a sermon to go, but I'm just so encouraged to hear from brothers and sisters. Um, I want to congratulate the college students and uh, their, their milestone. Uh, what, a, what an amazing milestone and, and, and such an unusual time of the year. And I know that a lot of plans are probably foiled because of our current state, but um, you really have been such a great encouragement to me personally. So thank you guys. Um, and Jason, I mean... We don't need to do this in some ways. You said everything that our vision and our values are about. So encouraged by you uh, and just blessed by that, man. I mean, there's some people, I can come up here and preach every week, but it doesn't, it doesn't um, do justice to um, the words that you've articulated in many ways better uh, than what I'm doing here. So I'm just so grateful for that. Uh, Brian, great, great work screwing in that light bulb as you were... Uh, as you were pre- as, uh, preaching or, you know, I, you know, I want to congratulate all the college students. Uh, and I screw on this light bulb, multitasking. Um, I'm multitasking in my career because I'm serving the college group as well as planting churches. So uh, I'm really rebuilding and retraining. And so I want to thank everyone. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, um, 
we're going to go a little over today. I, I just want to start by saying that we're going to go a little over today uh, because uh, you, you didn't give me a whole lot of time to finish, but we're not going to go much over. Uh, we, knew, we knew that um, we had a lot more content today. So if you're new or visiting, um, we're concluding our, the book of Genesis. It's been, it's been a, a great journey. And we're going to conclude with a mini-series right now that we're, in, we're really winding down in the life of Joseph. And you'll learn that as you near the end of Joseph's life, you have this narrative right here that really speaks to the end of Jacob's life. Jacob is Joseph's father as well. So uh, by, by this point, we know that Jacob has reunited with his son. He's reunited with his favorite son who he thought was dead because his brothers had betrayed him. After 22 years, they're finally reunited. And by now, Joseph... Joseph is in a very different place. He's wealthy. He's powerful. He's risen to the level of prime minister in Egypt, and he's humbled. There are three things we're going to look at today. Why we need God's grace, why we need to experience God's grace, and what it means to apply God's grace. Why you need it, why you need to experience it, what it means to apply it. Uh, God's grace sheer grace in our lives. First, uh, why do we need God's grace? Verse 15, Jacob blesses Joseph. And he says this, he says, may God, may the God before whom uh, my fathers have walked, the God who has been my shepherd. Now look, Jacob isn't writing a paper on God's grace here. He's not, he's not making a speech about God's grace. It sounds like he is, but if you read the text, He's speaking in ancient Hebrew poetry. In other words, what? Jacob's singing. After all his life and all of his pain and suffering, Jacob is in song. And it's the first time in the Bible that somebody refers to God as a shepherd. But the thing is, if God is a shepherd, what is Jacob admitting about himself? He's admitting that he's sheep. Sheep are what? They're defenseless, they're helpless, they need constant care, constant watch. But as you give care and as you give watch and guidance and direction, they're constantly resistant, constantly rebellious. You read about having to almost uh, grab sheep by their legs so that they can't squirm away because they're constantly resisting, like a baby. And, And so we need God to draw us in the same way. We need God to run and pursue and capture us and shape us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take, it, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Jesus, Jesus himself says in the gospel according to John, no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And that when he says draws him, it's not the image of a person putting down a bucket down a well and drawing water. It's not like that. Jesus is actually using the imagery of a man who is in chains about to be dragged to prison and he's holding on to things and he's resisting and God has to draw him out. That's what he's saying. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's an amazing admission there. That's what Jacob is saying about himself. That, that he is sheep. And, and if you think about it, um, it it's, it's an interesting thing. Because what you're seeing here is Jacob resisting the will of God all his life. Why? Because God's word, God's promise, it feels constraining. 
He thinks that uh, listening to God's word is going to decrease his options and potential and joy and freedom when it's actually going to increase his options and potential and joy and freedom. We need thee every hour. We need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. We need God to draw us. That's the first point. We need the God. Uh, We need the God of grace. We need God's grace. Now, the second point is just admitting that you need God's grace is not enough. Just admitting that you are helpless is not enough. It's not sufficient. You need to experience God's grace in a way that's going to change your life, in a way that shapes your life. Jacob says in verse 16, the angel who delivered me from all harm, may he bless. Now remember, he thinks, he's wrestling the angel. He's looking back at a time. He's thinking back to a time in his life when he had uh, uh, wrestled uh, the angel of the Lord. Jacob is reflecting on the climactic moment of his life. When he wrestled with God. That's the angel of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 32. That night. You go back to Genesis 32. Jacob is alone. Jacob is isolated. He is separated from his family. Separated from his friends and all of his workers. And there he meets God in the darkness. In the aloneness. In the isolation. And he wrestles God all night. And the thing is. He, God could have destroyed him. He deserved to die. He's a liar. He's a cheater. He's a stealer. Ruined his family. Practically ruined his life multiple times over. Caused a lot of friction. Not only in the family. But even in his own unique family. When he, when he chose to love Rachel more than his other wife. You see? And that's a brokenness. That's not a model of godliness. Scripture is not meant to model godliness for us. It's to show how broken even the best of us can be. Even those whom God has chosen, it shows how broken our lives are. He deserved to die, but instead God, who could have wrenched him in his life for good, blesses him there. In this peak time of personal crisis for Jacob, God met Jacob, and there Jacob experienced that he deserved to die and yet instead is blessed. See, when you experience God's grace, on one hand, it's like wrestling. You're alone. You're focused. There's a heaviness and a weight, and you're struggling, and you're in pain, and you're resisting. And some of us right now are going through that. It could be because of job situations. It could be because of disease. It could be because our families are suffering. It could be a lot of things. Just the isolation, the sheer aloneness in our circumstances right now. We're struggling and we're in pain and we're resisting. Jacob, his hip is, his hip is just thrown out of joint. And there's incredible pain. But it's in that battle that Jacob starts to realize how foolish he really is. How lost he is how lost he's been. And Jacob realized right there that he's been wrestling God all his life. Remember, it was complete darkness. He didn't know who he's fighting. But as dawn was approaching, he starts to realize it dawns on him that he's been wrestling God all his life. And it broke him and it humbled him. Because there Jacob saw into his own life. He saw his own struggle with God, metaphorically represented, demonstrated through this physical wrestling match with God. But on the other hand, God was present there. God was there in the aloneness, in the isolation, in the wrestling. Even if you're wrestling God, God is there. And a lot of us, we're just wrestling and struggling. We're in that darkness. And first of all, I want to remind you there's a dawn coming. But it's God that you've been wrestling with all your life. And 
I, it's my prayer that, that humbles you, breaks you, so you will turn to him, you see? God is present. Years later now, Jacob is with Joseph, and he's looking back on his life because he's about to give a deathbed blessing. And uh, if you understand his story, that's a very, very significant part of Jacob's life, that deathbed blessing, uh, as he's about to bless uh, Jacob, uh, Joseph's sons. And he's looking back, and he realizes, I thought God was my enemy, but in actuality, he's my shepherd. Well, Donnie, why do we feel so much pain sometimes? Why does God allow that kind of pain and suffering? And Jacob answers that question. He's looking back at his life, and he sees God as his shepherd. And he basically says this, look at my pain. I mean, I'm walking with a limp. My life has forever been transformed, but it woke me up, and now I see. I see clearly who I am, who God is, that God is out to bless not to damage and, and maim and throw in pain and destroy. Verse 19, if we, and we're going to get into verse 19. It's Jacob's way of saying that I have new eyes. I have a new lens by which I view the world. Before, everything I did was to run from God to find, to increase my options and potential and joy and freedom. But I realized that I was actually limiting myself, not increasing myself, not building myself. I was actually limiting myself. And it wasn't until I experienced intense pain in my life that I realized God has been pursuing me all my life to bless me. That blessing that has been so elusive in my life, it was right there. It's not the things It's the presence of God, and there is blessing there. Now, we're going to get to the most important, the the crux of this passage. It's verses 10 to 20. Jacob's eyes are dim. Jacob is old, but he's wiser now. He's wiser. Joseph, he brings his two sons to Jacob. Uh, One is Manasseh, the other is Ephraim. Manasseh is the older one. Ephraim is the younger one. He brings him to Jacob. You got to remember, Jacob was the younger son. He had an older brother that was supposed to be blessed according to culture. Joseph leads Manasseh as a result, because it's the culture, he leads Manasseh, the older son, to Jacob's right hand, right? Uh, Because the blessing was intended for Manasseh. The law of primogeniture says that Manasseh is the elder, so he gets the lion's share of the honor and the glory and the wealth and the power and the status. So Joseph brings Manasseh to the right hand of Jacob, and he brings Ephraim, the younger son, to the left hand of Jacob, so they can both be blessed accordingly, the right hand going to the elder, the left hand going to the younger. And Joseph is asking Jacob, basically, to approve of the elder son. I want you to approve Manasseh. It's, it's, it's the cultural way of doing it. Executive authority. You are the executive authority, and I would like for you to bless the elder so that it passes down. That blessing passes down. But Jacob is seeing what Joseph did. And what he does is he crosses his hands so that his right hand goes to the younger son, and his left hand goes to the older son. You see? So the blessing goes to Ephraim, the younger. But the thing is, the blessing was supposed to go to Manasseh. And so in verse 17, Joseph is indignant. He's displeased, it says. And he interrupts. He says, no, my father. This is what you're supposed to do. This is Manasseh. You're supposed to bless him. But Jacob says in verse 19, I know. In fact, I want to express to you what he says. He says, I know, I know. When you see phrases like that, a Hebrew doublet, it represents emotional intensity and content. Jacob is looking back on his life, sees elder and younger. This was his struggle all his life. And now he's learned. And so he crosses his arms and blesses the younger. And Joseph says, no. 
And Jacob is crying. There's emotional content. He says, I know. I know what I'm doing. I know. All my life, I believed what you thought. And it was a struggle for me, but I know. All of life looks different when you start to view the world and your decisions and your life choices through the lens of God's grace. If you've experienced God's grace, that everything that you've received is by God's sheer grace alone, and you have that working in your life through your pain, through my pain, I've learned this, he says, that the gospel shapes your values and the gospel shapes your life goals, your life agenda. How does it do that? You know, if you look at uh, Joseph, Joseph has the power. Joseph has authority. He's got status. He's got wealth. Joseph is at the center of the center of the world. And the ancient world says that life, that society is built around, this is the ancient world, built around men, not women. It's built around the strong, not the weak. It's built around the elder, not the younger. It's built around the wealthy, not the poor. It's built around the intelligent, not the uneducated. It's built around the higher class, not the lower class. This is how you got to grow. This is how you got to build. This is how you got to mature. It's not too different today. It's not too different today. And Jacob, he had that view, but he matured. Maturity is to see how the grace of God is moving in the world and in your life. And so Jacob saw God's grace through a pattern of his own life, validated through the promise that he received, that he understood his word, God's word, and it validated it moving to Ephraim the younger. That's what was going on here. He was processing the world through his experience. God always chooses the weak. He always chooses the younger and the broken and the ugly and the humble. It's a pattern of God's way of moving. And Jacob saw that in his own life. And so Jacob's right hand moves over to Ephraim and his left hand moves over to Manasseh the elder because he's following God's economy of grace. What does that mean? Jacob realized that he didn't need to cheat. He didn't need to steal or lie to get the blessing because God would have given it to him by grace alone. He found that out later after much pain and much hardship. Because if you trust God as your shepherd, that's the end of lying. That's the end of stealing. That's the end of cheating. And it's the beginning of trusting in God. It's the end of slaving to get ahead of other people, stepping on their necks and their backs to get ahead. It's the end of anxiety and fear as if you think that God might have gotten it wrong for you. This is my goal. This is my life. This is what I'm supposed to have. And it's as if God is is doing it the wrong way. Jacob didn't need to ruin his family, ruin his marriage, ruin his own children. Because if he had just trusted, he would have seen as he now sees clearly that God always moves towards the weak. He always moves towards the younger. He blessed Jacob over Esau. He blessed Abel over Cain. God intentionally chooses people that the world says no to. You see that? Keep in mind, Jacob didn't hate Manasseh. In fact, he says, Manasseh is going to be fine. Verse 19, Manasseh is going to be fine. But God's grace works in and through the failures of the world. That's what he says. Look at the faithful love of God. 
when Jacob chose to run from God, when Jacob chose to sin and rebel against God, resist against God, when we are weak and helpless, God's compassion is the compassion of a shepherd. He's not doing it for gratitude. Sheep aren't grateful. He's not doing it for something in return. Sheep can't pay him back. God's compassion is always because you're weak. He's attracted to the weak. He's attracted to the ugly. He's attracted to the humble. And when you are humble, it reflects the character of his own son. The ultimate example of kingliness and competence who became the ultimate example of helplessness and weakness. Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, became a sheep. God's economy works through the broken. He works through the abandoned because the ultimate expression, the ultimate example of God's grace working in that way is in the one person who's been abandoned by everybody, beginning with his own friends, beaten, rejected even by his father, by God, and left for dead by God on the cross. And so when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am the deserving one. I am the one who is righteous. I am the beloved son. In the, in the gospel according to Mark, in the beginning, you see God, the heavens opening up. And he says, I love my son, doting on my son. And yet on the cross, the father's hand of wrath fell on Jesus. And his hand of blessing fell on the people. And so it was the people who deserved the wrath and Jesus Christ who deserved the honor. And yet God's right hand of blessing fell on the people and God's left hand of wrath fell on Christ. God himself demonstrates a switching of hands. So that his hand of justice and judgment was placed on Jesus and his hand of blessing fell on us. Jacob was doing by faith what God would ultimately do on the cross and placed us before his own son. Now think about this. Every blessing that Ephraim would receive would be at Manasseh's cost because Manasseh had to sacrifice. Manasseh had to pay the price. And in the same way to the ultimate degree jesus christ paid the ultimate price for us his people there's a hymn that we don't sing um, but lyrically it's unbelievable it talks about jesus christ drinking up the dregs of god's wrath now what are dregs dregs are when you're sipping a cup of tea there's a the pieces at the bottom that don't uh, of, of the tea the tea leaves that are remaining that you don't ever put into your mouth you don't really ever it's but it's still got some potency in it And the hymn basically says that Jesus took those pieces, the dregs of God's wrath, so that there's no wrath left. He took it and sucked it all up until it was all absorbed. He drank the dregs of God's wrath so that we could have the abundance of God's blessing. And Jacob got it. Jacob understood it. He knew it. This is how God works to bring about salvation. And it changed his life. He shaped his life. How does it shape your life? How does this shape the way you look at people who are less attractive, the way you look at people with less wealth or are less educated or less different racially or different ethnically, different capability-wise? Because the gospel shapes what you are attracted to because why was God attracted to you? Because you were pretty? Because you were intelligent or athletic? No. He's attracted to you because you were weak and helpless and sinful but humbled. Humble by his spirit. It took Jacob decades to see that. Why? Because he was driven by his life agenda. He was driven by the blessing. I need to earn it. I need to work for it. 
That's what makes you, in many ways, you're striving to become the elder brother in some ways, right? But God, oftentimes, he goes against your plan, against your agenda. Your life almost seems like it's taken a left turn. And if you feel that way, that you're, we all feel that way at some point in our lives, that our lives have taken a left turn and we're just kind of meandering around. God is doing that intentionally to wake you up for your good and for his glory. Verse 15, Jacob looks back and he says, all my life. He's been this way all my life, a shepherd all my life. It's an amazing admission because most of his life, he's been resisting God. You gotta take that story of Jacob. You gotta plant it into your own story. Every time that you are passed over, every time you are tempted to lie, every time you are tempted to cheat to get ahead, every time you're tempted to pursue a worldly blessing above the blessing of just being in Christ, every time you experience that, as a way of gaining a sense of worth for yourself, whatever it is, you got to take this story and plant it in your life. Jacob had a father that didn't love him, an uncle who used him, a brother who wanted to kill him, and a wife that was damaged by him. He lost his favorite son, or so he thought he lost his favorite son. Virtually for 22 years, he lost the best years of his son's life, he lost. And he says, I thought you were dead, but now I get to see you and your sons. What blessing is that? God truly is my shepherd. Yes, he had plans. Yes, he wanted wealth. Yes, he wanted a beautiful wife. Yes, he wanted a large family. He thought this was going to bring peace to his life. It brought a lot of strife to his life because he was resisting God through and through and through. That was his agenda. Clearly, God had other plans. To kill Jacob? No. To save Jacob. To redeem his family. For his glory. For Jacob's good. And Jacob got it. And once he got it, and once he surrendered, there was peace. That's what this is about. Jacob doesn't tell Joseph, hey, God is in control. Do nothing. Or God is not in control. That's my experience. So do everything. That is all on you. He doesn't say that. He says, God is in control. Trust him and live in line with that because that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing right now. Process your life by taking that story, planting it in your story, and let it change the way you look at your life, the way God sees your life. By the way, that's faith, to process your life through the lens of God's worldview. Act on that. Apply that. Align your heart. Align your will and your mind, your strength. When you do that, we call that worship. That's when you make your life a worship. Jacob is singing about God's faithfulness. You see that? Now, you may say, oh, look at the brokenness. Look at the sin and the, and the lies and the suffering. How can that be of God? God does not work despite your your sin and your lies and your suffering. God does a saving work through your sin and your lies and your suffering. That's his pattern. That's his power. You gotta live in line with an active God that is working through all of your deepest brokenness and hurts to bring about the greatest, the greatest demonstration of God's faithfulness in your life. How do you know that Jacob got it? Because verse 15, he says, the angel delivered me. The actual word that he uses there is redeemed. The angel delivered me. The angel redeemed me. To redeem is to owe such a debt that you've got no choice but to become a slave to pay it off. And Jacob says, the angel redeemed me. He paid the price. 
He's talking about the angel of the Lord, not just an angel, the angel of the Lord. He's talking about Jesus himself paid the price. So Jacob, in that moment, must have had some view, either looking back or looking ahead. He's had some view, sensing that, number one, he was wrestling the Lord, and that he was getting something that he didn't deserve, and that was costly. And he saw enough about what God was going to do for all of man to trust and to live in line with it in faith. How can you see that? And it's because in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. And so John the Baptist sees Jesus coming for the first time in John chapter 1. And he says, behold, I'm looking, look intently at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God, the shepherd became the sacrifice and the cross is the evidence. All we're called to do is behold the beauty of God. If you're looking for beauty in your life, Jesus Christ is so much more beautiful when you see this, when you look at the cross, because what other king would sacrifice his own life for you? What other king would sacrifice his own glory for you? What other king would sacrifice his own throne for you? Behold the beauty of Jesus. And what other king would sacrifice his rights, the rights of the son? The first son gets the throne. What other king would sacrifice that for you? And so when Jesus Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've given up the glory. I've lost my glory so you could have the glory. I've lost my wealth, so that you could have eternal wealth. I've lost the power, so you could have the power of God working in you. I've lost the favor of God, so that you could have the blessing of God in you. In union with Jesus, connected to Jesus intimately. If Jesus Christ was just a king in your life, that would be oppressive. You were going to dwell on your failures, dwell on your ugliness, the ugliness of sin. But if you see him as your shepherd, you will dwell on his care and his love. Your own resistance to that. And when you see your resistance and you see God's care through it all you, and you recognize his grace of God working through all that, well, number one, that's called maturity. And number two, it leads to a song. We're about to respond in song. Will you reflect on these words and respond to the beauty of God and the grace of God in song together? Let's pray.